Good morning, Richmond. I'd love to add my warm welcome to those who've been on stage four. Thank you so much, Pam, Marie and Sophie for leading us. And I loved your reflection, Pam. That was beautiful. And I was yeah, absolutely loving everything you were saying until I realised how intimidating it was having to jump up here and share after you. So much would have rather we just let you do 20 more minutes sharing on that story. But how wonderful that was. We're starting a new series this week. I know we say this about every series, but I'm really excited about this series. And this one's called The Scriptures That Shape Us. And hopefully we all have a recognition that Scripture has shaped each and every one of us. And there are certain passages, parables or stories that might speak to you more than, more than others and that you've made your own stories and Scriptures that might intersect with your own life, your own experience in a significant way. And throughout this series, we're going to have seven people come, some from within Richmond, some without, and talk about how a specific scripture has had an impact on their life, how it's helped to shape them. And this isn't necessarily about inviting us all to conclude what your favourite verse is, to finally nail down what your favourite scripture is. It isn't to sell more magnets or cards with these popular verses um, on the front of them. But our hope is that in sharing how scriptures shape and inform each one of us, we'll be encouraged to consider, to re-remember how we ourselves have been shaped by scripture. And even more so that as we hear one another's stories, we might see see passages in a light that we hadn't been able to see them in before, that we might understand aspects and elements of scripture that we'd missed. Because we recognise that whenever each of us engage in scripture, whenever we read the Bible, We're making a decision to allow ourselves to be shaped. We should go to Scripture. We should go to our Bibles expecting to be shaped, expecting to be changed. And when Melinda came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in this series, it wasn't hard for me to pick which Scripture I'd want to turn to because there is one passage for me that shaped me far more than any other Scripture, one that's come up multiple times in my life. And before I read that passage, I want to tell you the story of of my engagement with this Um, passage and how God captured me, how God has shaped me. So I went to a Christian primary school. When I started my primary schooling, I was over in New South Wales and it was a Christian Christian primary school, not a nominally Christian one. It went all the way on Christianity and talking about it and all those sort of things. But in second grade, this competition came up and it was a competition where every student was encouraged to pick a favourite scripture and memorise it. And then you'd come before a panel of five teachers and you'd recite this scripture that you'd memorised and you'd get judged. I can't remember what the judging criteria was. The more I've thought about it this week, the weirder it is. But I know this will be hard for you to believe because you all know me as a bit of a rebel, but I was a bit of a goody two-shoes back in school. So I took this competition very, very seriously. But second grade Josh's trouble was he didn't have a favourite verse at that stage. So I went home and had a bit of a process towards it. I went, what's going to be impressive to a panel of judges? It'll be if I can remember a whole psalm. But that also sounds tricky, so we'll choose a short psalm, just one with five verses. And we'll choose one that's uplifting and pleasant because that's going to get everyone in a good mood and that might help with the judging. And so that was my process of choosing a favourite passage of Scripture. That There wasn't more to it. I'd be lying if I said I really feel it was a God-breathed thing in that moment. I'd also be lying if I could tell you how that competition went. The fact I don't remember tells me I probably didn't do all that well. But from that day forward, whenever people ask me, what's your favourite part of the Bible? What's your favourite scripture? I'd point to this psalm. And in primary school and high school, that does seem to come up intermittently. And I'd often go back to this part of scripture, but I didn't really have much of a process beyond it. I just had remembered it. I'd memorised it. 
But if I fast forward a little bit further into my story, a lot of you know a lot of my testimony. But five or six years later, just after my 13th birthday, my mum was being transported to a hospice. Just a couple of weeks, a couple of days to live. And in that time, a lot of the things that have shaped me in my walk with Jesus happened. A lot of battles, a lot of angry conversations, a lot of tears, a lot of wrestling if I wanted to be on God's side or not. And in the weeks before, my dad sat me down and said, Josh, I think you're now mature enough to make this decision, but in your mum's final moments, do you want to be in the room? And I decided that I did. I decided that that was something for me that was important. My brother and sister were quite a little bit younger than me. They didn't feel ready to make that decision. But as the day came around, my dad told me to come into the room and we sat on either side of my mum's bed. My sister was in the, just outside the door playing the piano and we could hear these songs that she was playing really clearly. My brother was far too young to understand what was going on, but we could hear him playing with a nurse and laughing and knew he was well looked after. But my dad grabbed out his Bible amidst all these tears, amidst all the processing, and started reading these scriptures. He knew what my mum's favourite passages were and he turned to them first. He'd lived on a Bible college. He knew the verses you meant to go to in tough times, the ones about the struggle, the ones about eternity, the ones about walking the race. And then he turned to me and said, Josh, is there a passage that's important to you? And instantly, this psalm came to mind, probably because I'd chosen it years ago because I'd named it as my favourite verse for a while. But amidst tears, I asked him if he could read this psalm. And in that moment, I'm not sure it was a God thing when I chose that verse in second grade, but in that moment, it was a God thing that we read that psalm. Because God revealed something in that psalm that I still struggle to, to explain to this day. I understood it in a new light. It made sense of a lot of things quite clearly for me in a way that I even struggle to explain now. I struggle to recapture now. This morning, I want to read to you this psalm. It's Psalm 100, and then try and unpack what King Jesus taught me in that time, how he shaped me through this psalm. So bring it up on screen. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his courts with thanksgiving, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Given the context of the story, it was probably a little cheerier than I would have chosen necessarily. I think in hindsight, if I'd been trying to think of the perfect psalm for the situation, it wouldn't have been one like this. But God absolutely used those words in that situation, use them to shape me, use them to shape our family in some ways. I want to start with the words that the psalm finishes on, because I think they were the ones that landed most obviously for me in, in my story. His faithfulness continues through all generations. I'm sure given the context of my story, you can understand why that was quite poignant, why it was important. But one thing I remember clearly that stuck out to me, that God hadn't revealed to me before or hadn't been obvious is that God's faithfulness is one thing. We don't all have our own individually packaged God's faithfulness. I don't have my own faithfulness where you have your own. His faithfulness continues through all generations. His faithfulness to me isn't separate from his faithfulness to you. His faithfulness to my mum wasn't separate to his faithfulness to me. And so his faithfulness to my mum, it continued It continues through her kids who made decisions to follow Christ, but it also continued in the lives of those she touched, in those she helped get to know King Jesus better, 
in the churches that she was a part of. And one day I'll take my own final breath and it won't be the case that his faithfulness to me has run its course. That chapter's finished. His faithfulness will continue. To those left behind, to the next generation of the church, just as it's continuing now in your lives. Because his faithfulness is one. We know his faithfulness will be eternal because of what comes earlier in the verse. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. God's love for us isn't like the way we might fall in love with each other. It doesn't have its ups and downs. It isn't temporary or a passing thing. God has always loved. He will always love. He is love itself. In fact, his love is one of the few things that endures. And we can trust his love because what it's paired with here, he is good. I think that last verse is just incredible. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. I know we've just finished the I Am series where we considered God's self-revelation of who he is and all these statements he said of the nature of who he is, but I reckon this verse is a pretty good trifecta. He is good, he is love, he is enduringly faithful. I can't think of a better three. And in the face of death and suffering, those words, they might not stop tears rolling down our eyes, they might not stop our sadness, but they do remind us of the character of our King. They remind us of the hope of eternity, but they also remind us of the promise of here and now. God's work in the world will continue, continues through generations, continues through one another. And it won't just stop at the next generation, it'll go for the one after that, the one after that, just as it always has. As I said before, I don't think I've ever been able to put into words what God said to me or what God spoke to me in this message or in this passage, but I do remember the singularity of his faithfulness. His faithfulness is one. It works through all generations. It works through all his people. And that faithfulness continues into what's next. If we take this psalm backwards, we'll jump up a verse. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. In that I Am series, we spoke just a few weeks ago about how often gates are connected to life. I was really close. I didn't know I was doing this sermon a few weeks later. I was really close to using this psalm in that sermon. But the good, the loving, the enduringly faithful God has left gates wide open for us. He allows us into his courts. So really, do we need to be told to give thanks and praise? Can our response be anything but? And again, I feel like we say this every week, but this is a now but not yet promise. The gate has been opened for us now. The temple courts no longer have restricted access. We know we are accepted and loved by God and that happens now, as Pam was sharing before. It is occurring in the present, so we do give thanks. We praise. We have patterns of that in our Sunday gatherings. We sing together each week. We have coffee together and talk about how good the King is. We do things at home. We say grace, a recognition of praise and thanksgiving. We acknowledge his goodness in various ways. I don't know about you, but we also have experiences where we look up into the night sky and see stars and have a sense of thanks and praise overflow within us. We can't help but praise and give thanks. But there is a not yet, for we know eternity is coming. That one day we'll depart this earth and we're going to enter the new temple. We'll go into the king's courts and never want to leave. We're going to live in an eternity where we praise his name, where we overflow with thanksgiving, 
not in a float on the clouds, play a harp kind of way. I'm convinced it's more of a looking up at the stars, looking out at a sunset, looking over the ocean and having thanks and praise overflow within us. And I can't wait for that eternity. And I'm also immensely grateful that I know as my mum left this life and her suffering here ended, that she had a confidence she was going into the king's courts, that she had a confidence she was going into an eternity of thanksgiving and praise. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, the promise of eternity. But if we stop there, we miss the point. It's also a promise for now. So as we said in the last series, the gate came and dwelt among us. The gate came and walked the streets. The barriers to the temple courts have been broken down. The curtain has been torn. Our response should be continual rhythms of thanksgiving and praise. Not as a forced rhythm, but as something that dwells up within us. Which isn't, please hear me say, it isn't to paint a smile and pretend all is well in the world when things are tough. But I'm convinced, and I was convinced in that moment that mourning and weeping don't have to be absent of thanksgiving and praise. And if thanksgiving and praise don't have space for mourning and weeping and sadness, then our definitions aren't good enough. We need to expand our definition of thanksgiving and praise. So jump up to the third verse, continuing with reverse order. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. My second grade self shudders at this line, because if you notice in verse 5, it's the Lord is good. This one is the Lord is God. Very easy to confuse, very intimidating with a panel of five teachers sitting in front of you. But this verse acts as a reminder of God's nature, which allows the psalmist to then go on in the next few verses to consider the eternal reflection, to consider the eternal implications of what is being said. Because God's promises of things that are to come God's promise of his courts and his temple, those promises of things outside of time itself only make sense if he truly is the almighty, the all-powerful, the one true God. See, we are told, we are called to know that the Lord is God, not just as an academic reflection, not just as something we intellectualise up here, not just something we say out loud, not something we write books on. We're called to relationally know that the Lord is God. We understand his godness because he has made himself known to us. We know he is God. We know he's all powerful because we believe he was the one who made us in the first place. He made our very being. I'm not sure if it's in your Bibles. It is in mine. There's a little note after the line, and we are his, that says another way to translate it could be, and not we ourselves. So it would read, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. I think I'm often reminded how little control I have over my own life. That I can't sustain my own life. I can't add a second to my life, no matter how hard I try. As a 13-year-old facing a hospice bed, you're also quite aware of that truth. I think Pam shared a bit on this this morning. We are aware there's nothing we can do to sustain life. And you'll have moments in your journey in your week-to-week where you stop to consider your own mortality and I'm sure you're aware there's nothing you can do to sustain yourself. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. I was listening to a podcast 
last week um, to the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church, one of their most recent episodes. And they were talking about some changes to churches that have happened over recent decades. And one of the podcasters suggested that perhaps one of the greatest losses to the church in recent times has been the loss of the church cemetery, the church graveyard, which wouldn't have made my top 100, which is why I probably don't get asked to go on podcasts. But they said the idea that you'd come to church and pass by the gravestones of the generations that have come before, the generations to which the king has been faithful to, was important. That there's something important about being confronted by our own mortality, important about considering the gospel in the light of our mortality, of being regularly reminded every week that his faithfulness does continue through all generations, reminded that it is he who made us and not we ourselves. I'm not going to suggest the practical application of this as we tell our building committee as we look for a new building that there has to be a cemetery alongside it or space for one. But I have thought this week, perhaps scriptures like this one, passages that remind us of our mortality serve a similar function. They remind us we are fragile. They remind us our lives are only possible because of the Creator. They remind us we aren't in control. They remind us that everything we have is because we have a Creator and a Sustainer. But they also remind us that the same creator and sustainer offers us his hand, offers us eternity. We are reminded in this line, we can't make ourselves. We can't sustain ourselves. But we're also reminded of a promise. We're reminded of our identity. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He didn't just create us and leave us to our own devices. He gives us meaning. He gives us a calling. He gives us purpose. The king of the universe calls us his. We can never stop being shocked by that. He considers us his sheep. And this isn't a promise of what will be. This isn't the not yet. He doesn't say you will be my people. You will be my sheep. He says you are my people. You are my sheep right here and now. The Lord's identity is that he is God. And we hear later in, this, in verse 5, he is good, he is love, he is enduringly faithful. But our identity is found in this verse. We are his. That is who we are. So we're saying this morning, I am who you say I am. We often live as though we want more. We want to be defined by the things we do, our successes, our status. We need to be satisfied with being his. The greatest gift that's extended to us. Because we can't take our status, we can't take our work, we can't take our success with us. My mum did some incredible things. She was an incredibly faithful woman. She was an awesome mother. She was a great friend. She was a great part of the church. She worked with people with disabilities because she believed in the loving and dignity for all. She'd be the sort of person that would see the person that had no one in the room to talk to and would go over and sit with them for hours. But ultimately, those things aren't her identity. Those things have little importance unless they flow out of being his. What's important is her identity was found in being his. She was one of the sheep of his pasture. And the promise of our identity needs to be found in that. I heard Ham share on the importance of singing. The importance of these. These things flow out of being his. And that brings us to our reason to participate in the first two verses. These incredibly cheery verses. The place where we're reminded to, where we're implored to, 
Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. How could we not? How could we not? And it'll look different at different times. As I hope we realise, joy isn't painting a happy face on a sad time. We worship with gladness, but we also worship in mourning. Which is why sharing stories of how scriptures shape us is so important. Because on the surface, second grade Josh saw this is a really happy, clappy psalm. I don't actually think it would be a poor exegesis or scholarship to do a sermon on health, wealth, and happiness based on this psalm. But scripture's importance is found in where it interacts and changes the lives of communities and individuals where it shapes the lives of communities and individuals. If we read the entirety of the Psalms, we can't conclude that the Psalmist wanted us to just smile and be happy and sing good songs. Because that wasn't the Psalmist's approach. The Psalmist was happy to get into the weeds. The Psalmist was happy to mourn. And in my life, God explicitly used a Psalm that was seemingly happy and clappy in the hardest moment of my life and taught me a different understanding of the generational nature of the kingdom taught me who he is, taught me who he's called us to be. And in the hardest moment, I didn't get up and dance to a happy song. I didn't even manage a smile, but I was strengthened by the call to shout to joy the Lord. And hopefully the way he's shaped me through this scripture, this passage has somewhat shaped those around me because it ends up changing how I talk about scripture, how I talk about this psalm, because it's changed my relationship with God, but it also changes my relationship with the church, with each one of you. I'm really excited for the coming weeks of this series where we hear how different scriptures have shaped one another because we'll come to understand scripture differently will come to understand aspects that I would have missed, that you might have missed. But we'll also come to understand one another better. Because when you've been shaped by Scripture, you understand it in a new way. But I also hope as we do this series, it's going to encourage one another. I hope it encourages myself to engage or re-engage in rhythms and practices of getting stuck into the Bible. Getting stuck into the Word. We often talk at Richmond about finding someone to read the Bible one-on-one with, finding patterns in your week going through a book with your gospel group, I really encourage you to consider how are you allowing yourself to be shaped by Scripture over this series. A confession I have is sometimes with sermons, I struggle with what I've heard um, Andrew Foster call landing the plane. I look up to the Melindas and Marks of this world who seem to be able to find this practical application to spend a couple of minutes doing, because I feel when I do it, it feels really corny and cheesy. And so I was going to just land with what I nearly always do, with a prayer and throw to a song and let someone else do the throw to coffee. But as I was going to do that, I was reminded that in year two, I chose a favourite verse because of a really cheesy assignment, because of a really corny thing to do, what I'm not even sure school should do today. So I want to invite you over the next few minutes, before we come back together, to shout for joy to the Lord with a song. To come up the front, we've got some butcher's paper and some texters. And what I'd love for you to do is just write a line of scripture, just write the name of a verse, write a whole passage if you like, of something that's been important in your walk. It doesn't need to have a big story behind it. You might have something as simple as my reasoning in year two for choosing a verse that you particularly like. 
what I'd love for you to do is write it down and if you can, write your name next to it. And we'll put that up over the coming weeks of this series. And what we'll have is a reminder that we are a room full of stories that have been influenced by Jesus differently. We're a community of people who shape one another because of how we have first been shaped. We've been shaped by the King. I encourage you, as, as you look at this over the coming weeks, maybe ask someone, why is that passage particularly meaningful for you? How did that come about? So we're going to spend a couple of minutes doing that. I'll invite Marie up to play some music behind us, and then we'll come back to pray in a few minutes. So please do come up the front. Let's pray together. King Jesus, you are God. You are good. You are love. You're enduringly faithful. Lord, thank you that your faithfulness does continue through generations. Thank you for your faithfulness for the generations that have come and the generations that are to come. Lord, may we live as your people. May our identity be that we are yours. We are your sheep. Lord, thank you that we don't have to do this life alone. Thank you that you sustain us. Thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, allow us to be shaped by you, by your teachings, and by what you're calling us to be. And thank you that we get to do that as a community. Lord, in this week, help us to engage in rhythms and practices that position us to be shaped, that remind us of who you are and who you've called us to be. Lord, you are good. You are God. Thank you for your faithfulness.